This week's reading for the sixth Sunday after Epiphany comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Jesus came down with the disciples and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. All in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Not very long ago, I received a message from one of my high school classmates that made me kind of sit up and pay attention when I realized this year will be 25 years, a quarter of a century since I graduated. And since my son is currently a high school senior, I got to thinking about that idea of senioritis in the last couple of months of of, uh, high school as you're moving towards the end. And as I was thinking back, I remembered something that my class got to do that no graduating class for many, many years prior to that had got to do. We got to go on an overnight senior trip. And so my humongous class of roughly 25 people jumped on a bus with a couple of chaperones. We left a very small town known as Grettinger in the northwest corner of Iowa, and we went to the mega, mega booming metropolis city of Des Moines, Iowa. Don't mock us. It's the biggest city that we have in the state. Of course, we did some educational opportunities. It was a school trip after all. But the highlight of the trip for us was that we got to go to the happiest place on earth. And no, I don't mean Disneyland. I mean a different amusement park that we know here in Iowa called Adventureland. Let me set the scene for you. It was late April. It was kind of a cloudy, overcast day. And it was the middle of the week. So you can imagine how non-existent the crowds were. But for our small group of high school seniors, this was perfection because it means we got to go on any ride we wanted to. We didn't have to wait. There was no lines. This became very, very evident when a group of, I don't know, five or six of us went onto one of the roller coasters. Now, here's the thing about roller coasters. I love them up and down, back and forth. You're, you're, you're feeling weightless in one second and you're getting crushed into your seat in the next as you go back and forth and up and down and loop to loop and round and round and round and everybody's cheering and everybody's screaming and it's wonderful. It's so exciting. I love them. And that was the case as we went on and we went through the ride and we came back into the, the station. I don't even know what you call the thing, but into the spot where you get on and off the train. And we were hollering and screaming, and we said, that was so great. Can we go again? And the guy who was running the, the, 
the ride, he took a look and there was no one waiting. He said, sure, unless no one comes up, you guys can keep going as many times as you want to. Yes, and we went around for a second time. And it was so great, up and down and back and forth and we're hollering and screaming and it's wonderful. And we came back into the station and we're like, let's go again. And so we went for number three and it was really cool. And we came around again and we said, let's go again. And we went on number four and yeah, that's, that's pretty great. And we went around on number five. Yeah, this is cool. And then number six. Whew. And seven. Ugh. And finally, eight. And the guy said, are you ready to go again? And maybe we were looking all green in the gills and he's really knowing what's going on. We said, no, let us off here. We discovered something, the up and down, the back and forth. It can be exciting, but it can swing you back around and leave you feeling sick to your stomach. Now this cycle, this up and down, back and forth, this idea of things going from exciting to really kind of rough, tuck that in the back of your minds because I think that's fitting when we think about our scripture for today. But let me set the scene for you here. Now again, here in Epiphany, we're talking about ways that Jesus is revealed to the world. We're still fairly early on in his ministry here in Luke's gospel. We haven't gotten real far. But he has been active in his teaching and his proclamation. He's been traveling around to different places. He's been healing individuals. He's, his power is on display and he is attracting crowds. Some people really like what they, have to, what they hear and what they see. Some really don't. Some are probably somewhere in the middle. Some show up one time and they, they hear what they need to hear or perhaps they're healed and they go on their way. Others follow along and some have made it their mission to continuously follow. Now those individuals, those who follow along after, we call them disciples. And by this point in the ministry, Jesus has already attracted a crowd of them. Not just the 12 disciples that we tend to think of, though they are included in the group, but a slightly larger group. At one point we hear there's about 120 of them. We don't know if that's the exact number at this point or not, but there's a group of people who are following Jesus as disciples. And immediately before our passage picks up today, Jesus has been up on a mountainside with that larger group, and he's actually picked the 12 out. And he's like, you guys are the more slightly special ones. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with you a little bit more closely. But this whole larger group is also there. And this whole larger group, Jesus, the 12 disciples, and, and the rest of the group, they all come back down off the mountain to a level place. And we hear that there's a crowd there, a crowd that is waiting for Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say. Many of them are also sick. They have diseases, some have unclean spirits, and we hear that Jesus teaches, and he also heals them all. That all who touch him, power goes out of him, and he is healed. That's the gist of the ministry that he has been up to, including this. Now, once that period of teaching, or excuse me, of healing is over, then he goes into a period of teaching something that we call here in Luke's gospel, the sermon on the plain, or the sermon on the level place. What I really like about this is like, we often see with different stories, it shows up in different gospels. This particular moment also shows up in Matthew's gospel, even though some of the details are a little bit different. This is common, usually that's the case, and it's no exception. In Matthew's gospel, they're still on the mountain. In fact, in there, it's called the Sermon on the Mountain, as opposed to the Sermon on the Plain that we have here in Luke. Matthew is also a little more extensive. In that one, Jesus rattles on and on and on and on, for three chapters. Here in Luke, it's only one. 
He covers a lot of the same basis. He just covers a lot more ground and a lot more detail in Matthew's gospel. But what I really like about this is not the necessarily the differences, though the differences are certainly on display, but I actually like the fact that they both start off in the exact same point. They may be happening in different locations, but he starts them the same way with this teaching commonly known as the Beatitudes. Now, Matthew's account is a little bit longer. His list is more extensive, but it's also one-sided. Blessed is this group of people. Blessed is that group of people. Blessed is this type of person. Blessed is that type of person. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are they and blessed are you. He kind of goes on and on and on and on and on. But here in Luke, as we hear, the list is a little bit shorter, but we also get both sides of the coin. Four types of people that Jesus starts off talking about. Blessed are you when this is your situation because it's going to change. Blessed are you in this type of situation because it's going to change. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. It's always blessed are you now because in the future things will be different. But then he flips it on its ear and we have the list of something not present in Matthew's gospel that I lovingly call the woes. Woe to you who are in this type of situation because it's going to change. Now, what I really, really appreciate about this is while at first glance, it may seem like a group of people over here, blessed are they, woe to this group over here. We actually find when we partner them up that Jesus is giving us two sides of the same coin in many, many different things. Now, here's the best example. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. I'm going to admit something to you now. In the past, when I have worked with this passage, when I have come across this passage, when I've talked about it, when I've thought about it, when I've read it, whatever, I've always taken kind of a static takeaway from it. That within the audience of Jesus, whether it was the people who were standing there with him that particular day or those of us who are reading it in the scriptures now, that whatever situation we find ourselves in as we read it, that's where we stay. And in that particular situation, blessed are you who are poor, now yours is the kingdom of heaven. But if you're rich, woe to you. Things are not going to go so well. And that wherever you are right now, that's where you stay. But then I got to thinking about it. And I got to thinking about that roller coaster and the up and down and the back and forth and the cyclic nature of it. And I realized something. Jesus isn't necessarily intending us to hear it and be stuck in there. Jesus is reminding us that life is not static. Life is ongoing. It is ever-changing and that cycle is present. Now, perhaps the best example of that is a different one that he lists out there about being hungry or being full. Think about this. How many of you out there have only ever eaten one meal? If any of you are raising your hand, I doubt it. We eat, we are full, but we get hungry again, and the cycle has to repeat itself. Blessed are you who are hungry now. You will be filled, but woe to you when you are full or you will be hungry again. Life does not leave us in that moment because it's ever going on, ever changing all around that. And here's the thing that really made me sit up and pay attention and realize this difference this time compared with the previous times that I've worked with this passage. It's one of the other blessings and woes. 
Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are weeping, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are laughing now, for you will weep and mourn. The reason for this has to do with my regular day-to-day work as a pastor. Now, because of the work that I do, I'm oftentimes included in various life events. One of those that I deal with is weddings, and another one that I deal with is funerals. Weddings are a wonderful thing. They are a joyful celebration of two lives coming together to form a new family, a new unit, a new married couple, whatever you want to call it. It is a wonderful time of celebration, of joy, of laughter. Funerals are the polar opposite. Funerals, regardless of the situation, always have a degree of sadness, of pain, of sorrow, of mourning. The reason that I'm really paying attention to that this particular time is that in the last couple of days, I have been in contact with an individual and a family, an individual who's part of a family, and in this individual's family, they are preparing for a funeral. We will have a graveside service where we're going to lay a family member to rest, and regardless of the circumstances, that sorrow is there. What's unique about this particular situation over any other time that I've ever experienced before is that this individual that I was on the phone with, this individual that I was in conversation with, I am also in conversation helping her as she moves towards her wedding. For this individual and this family, that cycle is going round and round. There will be celebration and there is also mourning and weeping. It's back and forth within this one family. And that really served as a good example of this this idea that I think Jesus is trying to say. Now, again, blame the day job. This is something that I've observed as a pastor. I love weddings and I love being a part of them. And if you're wondering, yes, I would probably happily do your wedding. They're a great thing. But I oftentimes find that God is more active. The Holy Spirit is more active active. The gospel is more active and is doing its job in the pain and the sorrow of that funeral than what is going on in the celebration of the relationship of the wedding. And I believe that highlights this idea that Jesus is trying to talk about. That life is up and down. It is back and forth and that where we are now, something is going to come our way that's probably going to change that. But in the moments of pain in the moments of suffering, in the moments of sorrow, in those times when we maybe don't know, can I get through this? Can I handle this? Is it over? Is this everything it's going to be? And we're so zeroed in on that painful moment. Those are the times when we are not alone. Jesus opens his ministry here in Luke's gospel with the words of the prophet Isaiah. We actually heard this a few weeks ago. I have come to proclaim good news to the poor sight to the blind, the oppressed shall go free. All of these wonderful things that God will be found with those who are in the midst of hardship. That seems to be the promise of the gospel that we find over and over and over again, and especially here in Luke's gospel, that God will be found with those who are in pain, with those who have been pushed to the margins, with those who have been forgotten about by society. That is where God is found, and God has promised to never, ever, ever leave them alone. The other thing that I really appreciate about this, when we consider the up and down nature of life, how life is always throwing something different at us, good, bad, or otherwise, is the promise that God seems to make that we will not be left where God finds us. 
when God comes along beside us, claiming us as God's own, you are my beloved child, we find that carries forward into whatever comes our way. And perhaps it's in those moments of pain and sorrow that we find the presence of God to be so much more needed, so much more welcome, so much more important to be reminded that this is not the end for us. And no matter what life throws at us, and no matter what ultimately comes our way, the claim of God upon you as beloved child will take you forward through anything, even death. This is the promise of the gospel that where this world groans in grief and pain, God is present and God will not leave us there. And that ultimately God will draw all people to himself. This is true for you, no matter where you find yourself today. So if today you find yourself in that place of pain, in that place of hardship, I pray that this would be good news for you, that you would know that ultimately you are not alone, even if it doesn't feel like it. The promise of God does not change whether we feel good about it or not. Whether we are in a position to recognize it or if the pain and sorrow and the hardship that we're experiencing might blind us to it. Remember that Jesus has promised sight to the blind, both literally and perhaps metaphorically. If we are blinded by that pain that we are feeling, God has promised that we will see again. And that ultimately, we will see the completed and fulfilled truth of what it means when God claims us as beloved child.